Um, okay, so I got a couple of, I got a question this week between the services, um, and uh, it actually was <clears throat> Sam uh, Marshall who asked, he said, okay, I want to I want to understand more about this whole angel thing. Um, and, uh, and it's so interesting to recognize, of course, we come from all kinds of, in this church, we come from all kinds of different backgrounds, <laughs> church-wise denominations, um, or unchurched experiences, all that kind of stuff, which is great. One of our great strengths, I think, <clears throat> um, as a church. And uh, by the way, don't, those of you who are concerned about how my shirts match, the stole, don't you like this week? Like it matches so well. Anyway, all right, so... Um, so, um, so, let's talk for a second. Um, the study of angels, theologically, is actually called angelology. I'm not kidding. That's the actual term for it. And um, angel just means messenger. The term angel just means messenger. And in, in the evangelical world, we've largely just kind of divided the spiritual beings into two headings, good guys and bad guys. And we call the angels, the good guys, angels, and the bad guys, demons. That is not a biblically accurate uh, portrayal. It is much more complicated than that, um, than, than just a simple binary like that. Um, a different kind, the angels are just a different type of created being. Um, they're not humans that died and then became angels. There's no indication of anything like that biblically. In fact, the opposite. Um, <clears throat> not, I don't mean the opposite is in they become humans. I mean the opposite is in that's not at all what's portrayed. Um, at some point in the timeline of creation, apparently God created invisible, immaterial spirit beings. Like humans, He gave them certain freedoms, a certain will, um, a certain responsibilities. And when we see terms in the Bible like powers and principalities, or rulers and dominions, or thrones and kingdoms, very often what we're getting is a glimpse into the spiritual realm, which is divided out like that. It's not just good guys and bad guys, it is it, on each side of that. There are hierarchies, there are structures, there's authority structures, all that kind of stuff. Some of them have more or less power or dominion or responsibilities, just like humans. Some of them are in service to God and others are in rebellion against God, kind of like humans. And anytime someone says like, well, how could angels ever rebel against God? Well, how could humans ever rebel against God? I mean, it's, a, it is, it's just part of that's that's the nature of creatures that are given freedom, and they get some of them are going to use that freedom and abuse that. Um, some uh, first service, I kid you not, first service, we've been doing the, everything had gone totally fine in the practice before the service, and then the minute the first song started, both screens went out um, at the very first song. And it's like, that could be some of those rebellious forces, right? Controlling that little, tweaking that wire, whatever it was. Like, how does that work that way? I don't know. Or maybe it's just a glitch, but that is a, um, that's, that's the kind of thing that you would see. Like, do we, are we experiencing, we are experiencing the invisible realm around us, but we don't get a lot of information about it. It's not meant to be our primary focus. This story, the Bible, is not about this it's not primarily about this. This story is not about them. For example, though there may be as many as four or five as spiritual beings, angels who are named, there's really only two for sure. The others may be titles, they may be descriptors, they may be names. It's hard to know, especially in Hebrew. But Michael and Gabriel are really the only two angels who we have clearly named in the Bible of what we assume to be a myriad of them, maybe millions. Who knows how many of them there are. And so, that's a good reminder. This story isn't about them. Maybe they have their own books. I don't know. They certainly have their own stories, 
This Bible is primarily about God and the part of His story that interacts with humanity. And so when we, when we teach angelology, we're constantly finding passages that are really not about angels and trying to extract information about their, the conditions of their existence and whatever. So just, just be comforted with the fact that we don't know a lot about them. And so an interesting question, a follow-up question to that was the question of, well, then how could an angel ever stand if he's just a created being, stand in the presence of God? And the answer would be, well, because he was invited to do so. There would be no, it's not like he earned that. It's not like Gabriel's like, I, I'm not kneeling. Like that, that's not, that's been tried. It didn't go well for the one who tried that. That was not a, that doesn't, you, that's not something that happens. It's not that Gabriel, by some merit of his own, even as a powerful archangel, is, is not able to do that. He, he was invited to do so. In fact, if you want to have your mind blown, consider what the author of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4. Verses 15 and 16, let us then, talking to us as believers, we don't have this one on the screens, let us then with confidence, and the King James, what is that word? Am I know that we enter how? Boldly is the word used. With confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So not only are there angels that stand, at least one, that stands in the presence of Almighty God. But as His sons and daughters, we enter boldly into His throne room. And that's something we're allowed to do, to come and ask for mercy and grace. We come to Him as though we're at home when we're with Him, because we're at home when we're with Him. That's how that works. A, quick, a very quick story to exemplify this, because I feel like maybe someone needs to hear this. We don't come, but we don't get everything, try to get everything right before we come to him, to talk to him, to engage with him, to seek grace and mercy and love and to be comforted by him. Um, I spoke at a men's event um, one time on the, the dangers of pornography and stuff. It was a huge church with this giant stage, probably 15 steps up to the stage. It was very weird. Imagine if my feet were about here when I'm preaching. And that, but it, it, was, so it was weird to me, but there was a massive room. And I had brought Mark, our firstborn, with us, and he was three at the time. Um, and so he was sitting down and playing and writing um, uh, down at the floor level on the front row. And I'm in the middle of teaching in front of these, I don't know, hundreds of men. And at some point in the middle of my talk, I feel my pants being tugged. And I look down, and there's Mark, and he's holding up a banana. And he says, peel my banana. <laughs> right in the middle of the talk, right? So anyone else would not have been okay for them to come up on stage in the middle of my talk and ask me to peel their banana, right? But he could enter boldly and ask for something from me because he's my son and he knows that's the rules. That's, that's part of how this works is to recognize that. Um, and so as we engage with, we, engage, we come to God as though we are sons and daughters. Those of us who know him, we get to do that. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. So before we get too overwhelmed with thought of an angel standing in his presence, recognize we also are invited into his presence. So today we're going to jump directly into our theme, hope, love, and now joy. This epic tale of God's engagement, him coming to earth, God with us, Emmanuel, um, covers the questions of many of our questions, the topic of hope. Obviously, we get hope from him coming. Um, we experience the love of him coming and what that means, which we talked about last week, and now the joy, um, the joy of him and what that means, rejoicing in that. And some of you are thinking, shouldn't the pink candle be love? And the answer is yes, but it isn't. So uh, I agree with you, it should be. So um, I like to read longer passages when I can. 
um, and certainly in a case, case like this of poetry, um, I really, I, I want to. And so, uh, very much so, I don't know how I could not do it. So let me jump into this. I'm going to read to you what is called in church history, the Magnificat, Mary's Prayer, the song that she writes upon discovering that she is going to give birth to the Savior of mankind. Verse 46 of Luke chapter 1. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. There's something powerful about the syncope and the and the, the, the type of literature that poetry is. It's important as sophisticated students of Scripture, which we all have to be in order to understand um, correctly how to apply Scripture, that we recognize the type of speech, the type of literature that we're reading. And this, obviously, is Hebrew poetry, which I'm going to talk about a little bit more in just a second. But poetry itself, I use this example. Most of you have heard it. Um, if I came home um, one day and discovered that Ginger had left a love poem for me sitting on the kitchen table... And, and I want to just, just get everything that I can out of her love for me by reading and really studying that poem. And so the poem begins with eggs, sandwich meat, trash bags, toilet paper, etc. right? And I'm thinking, man, what is she saying about her love for me in this poem? What is toilet paper reference? Like, I'm going I'm to come to all kinds of really bad conclusions, right? In fact, almost every conclusion I come to is going to be bad because I'm not reading it at the proper type of literature that it is. I'm reading it as poetry, love poetry, not um, a grocery list, and so which are very different types of literature. I need to be able to engage with it correctly, and so we do that. We intentionally, as part of why we come here on Sunday morning and why we go to life groups and Bible studies, is to be, be able to unpack these things that way. Poetry, in particular, because of its rhythm, its meter, um, the different ways that it's written, especially when it is sung, it grabs a hold of our heart and it holds on to our hearts and brains. It sticks in our memory. How often do you, are you, if you read through the Psalms, do you discover you have several of them memorized you didn't know you had memorized because they're just hymns that we've been singing all our lives have been taken directly from the Psalm or praise song. So, um, and we're going to show you before we're done today how the Hebrew scriptures are so anchored in the hearts and minds of Zechariah and of Mary that their poetry is essentially just a restructuring of Hebrew psalm concepts. Um, so I, I just want to give you one example of this. Like This is something I know none of you have heard for at least five years because this company went out of business five years ago. But if I, especially for my generation, if I start like this, okay, ready? I don't want to grow up. Okay, what? None of you have heard that for at least five years because they went out of business five years ago, and yet you all, that's the power of poetry and song to anchor itself in our hearts, right? Um, 
That is a, the, the modern, it's a, it's a modern skill set that is almost dead because they do memes now, not jingles. And so when I looked for modern jingles, it was like nothing. I mean, they were literally doing like that example was one of the modern, that's not modern. So now songs are still that way. We can delineate in our culture who you are, how old you are, that kind of thing, just by figuring out which songs you can finish how misspent your teenage years were, by how many lyrics you know, and which bands you know, the every detail about, right? You can tell these things. So songs are very powerful for us. And here, I just read that song, a song that Mary wrote in English with an East Texas syncopation, which is not at all what Mary's would have sounded like. So fortunately, I was able to find online this song being sung in Aramaic which would have been the language that Mary would have probably been speaking. And this is Chaldean uh, Aramaic, slightly different probably from Galilean um, Aramaic, but we wouldn't know the difference. There's background music behind this, which is unfortunate, and there is, it's a male voice. I wish it had been a female voice, but this is the only one I could find. But I want you to see just how different it is from our intuitive experience. Got it? So you can see that's very different than the English. She, she was singing something that to us sounds very Arabic because Aramaic is one of the roots of the modern Arabic language. And so for us to recognize this is, that's what Mary, that's what Gabriel would have sounded like speaking to her. I assume he was speaking Aramaic to her. Then her, speak, then her singing this song to God in Aramaic would have sounded probably much like that. If you look at her words, then as we unpack her words a little bit, uh, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, as we are. For he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. How fascinating that Mary begins her poem by writing to the Lord, the very name that her son will be given um, as he's on earth, a name that is to be used for her son who is not yet conceived, who is still fully experiencing his divinity. He has not emptied himself and taken on the form of man yet, but he's going to soon. First, as a single cell, I assume, inside of her body, which then her body, through the power of her body that God created and through God's power, will begin to grow and develop and divide and become this child. 
and then taking on all of humanity, emptying himself and living life as a human being and a life of servanthood and eventually the death of a martyr. And here she is singing a song to her son who she hasn't yet married as he is, I mean, hasn't yet met as she is experiencing, hasn't yet grown inside of her. She is such a small thing. She points out she is such a small thing in his eyes and yet he has chosen her and he sees her. That was the, the language for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's taking this almost certainly from her ancestor David's words in 2 Samuel chapter 7. <clears throat> then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Here again, a thousand years later, Mary is singing some of these very same concepts. The first part of her song is what God has done for her in particular. Her soul rejoices because, that's the joy, he looked on me. He did great things for me. His mercy is on everyone else along with me who fears him. Verse 51. Then this next part explains what he is like. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So what is he like? There's her list. He shows strength. He scatters the proud. He brings down the humble. He ex brings down the mighty. He exalts the humble. He fills the hungry. He sends away the rich. He helped Israel and he fulfills that promise. Now, I got to tell you, I, I don't like this aspect of Hebrew poetry. There's a part there that I don't like. It's the dichotomies that I don't like, the unnecessary dichotomies. Is it necessary for God to bring down the rich in order to ri raise up the poor? No, that's not necessary. I've seen God bless the rich and bless the poor. Those, why is that there? That trouble, in fact, it just irritates me, to be honest. I, I hate unnecessary dichotomies. And so when, I, when I'm running into this, I'm like, why, why is that there? Why, why put that in God's hands? Why lay that at his doorstep? He's blessing the poor. He's taking care of, what is that about? <laughs> so one, as I'll reference here in a second, this is the way this poetry works. We're going to look at Hannah's in a second. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and jump to, uh, to Hannah's prayer uh, down here for a second. In uh, the chapter from 1 Samuel, which we read this a year and a half ago, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 2, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Again, you see those dichotomies there, that it's not just the, the, the weak who are brought to power, but it's the powerful who are brought down. I referenced my discomfort with this and, uh, on the, on the in-between podcast, and, and Redford was like, hey, you, literally your calling that you believe God gave you is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, right? That's what I think God laid on me when I was a teenager was that calling. Well, as some students pointed out recently, isn't, isn't that some kind of weird oxymoron? Like, so you're going to find an afflicted person and comfort them until they're comfortable, and then you're going to afflict them until they're not comfortable? Any? Like, so it makes sense in my mind. The, the idea is that there, are people who, that there are people who have taken this. It doesn't mean all comfortable people are bad or all afflicted people are good. That's not what that means in the same way <coughs> that, yes, it is true in a dark culture like the one that they're living in, 
If you are wealthy and comfortable, there's a very, very good chance you have compromised. If you live in a dark, pagan, evil culture and you're doing great, you may need to check your life for compromise. I think that is a fair issue here. But here's what's important about this Hebrew literature style. It is this. The main message is God is doing a new thing and it's not what you expect. You've always prized this and God is saying, stop and prize this. Your economy is this. This is a proof of God's blessing as wealth. No, it isn't. The proof of God's blessing is grace. It's mercy. God will choose those who you, didn't, you wouldn't choose. He will choose them and make them great and bless them. That's the main message of Hebrew poetry typically is, yeah, things look a certain way, but they're not really that way. And that's clearly what she's dealing with, what she's facing. So that was what Hannah was facing, is that same prayer. So verse 56, Mary remained with her, meaning Elizabeth, for about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary leaves either immediately before or immediately after the birth of John. Verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. <coughs> her neighbors and relatives <coughs> heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So these same family and friends are going to face several different, they're going to have a little bit of an emotional roller coaster here. Ready? So at first they rejoice. That's our key. There is a lot of rejoicing that comes in relationship. A lot of the rejoicing that God has for us comes in our friends and our family and our community for sure. And, and a, as they always say, a sorrow shared is half a sorrow and a joy shared is twice a joy. And so there's something to that. Did you experience that? Verse 59, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, well, none of your relatives are called by this name, and they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, I commented on this a couple of weeks ago. This is, a very, this is either a, a, a misunderstanding on our part, uh, or this is a very funny scene, because Zechariah is not deaf. Um, and yet they're making signs to him. I don't, again, I don't, I don't know is this, it turns out that the Greek here can mean deaf and mute. So it may be that Zechariah has spent the last nine or ten months deaf and mute. Now there's nothing contextually because it keeps saying, it doesn't say his ears are opened at any point. It says his tongue is loose, his mouth is open. But maybe this is our hint that the people are making signs to him because he's deaf and mute. May, maybe so. Or Maybe they're just like the rest of us, and they get caught up in the fact that he's making signs, so they start making signs, right? Like us, we just start yelling at people who don't speak our language, because that'll help, right? That's, that's our, we, we just aren't that bright. And it could be just that funny that this is like, that, that he's, he's sitting there rolling his eyes as they're trying to make signs to him, and he's like, I can hear just, you know, anyway. But, so here's what happens. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. Okay, so we've got rejoice, and now they're in awe. What is this? Verse 64, and immediately his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. We'll come back to that. And fear came on all the neighbors. So we, we rejoiced, and we wondered, and now we're afraid. We're terrified in this. And all these things were talked about through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? Zechariah is going to tell us in a minute. For the hand of the Lord was with him. So unlike Jesus, whose birth is very private and almost secretive, 
John's is very public, and everyone knows this is special. Something very special has happened here, and we all know it. And so Judea, which the Judean, the Judean hills country, which is where Jerusalem is, it's where Bethlehem is, it's where that whole area is. That's, that area is all abuzz about this child. What's happened? The, the child of Zechariah has been born, and his name is John, and there's all these different things going with them. No wonder he went public later in the wilderness, and when he does, they all flock to him. They go find him years later, 30 years or so later. Verse 67, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, again, on our conversation on the, on the in-between podcast, we were talking about this, and we were talking about how, you know, when you've got a family member who is, is hard of hearing or who's going deaf or who just through age or whatever is having a harder time hearing, that you notice they begin to separate themselves out, kind of. And so everybody's talking, and they, aren't, they don't talk as much because they're not sure they picked up on all the conversation. They're not sure when they're supposed to step in or not. And so we talked about, has this last nine or ten months been either Zechariah, either because he can't hear or because he can't speak, has he just been sitting back not engaging in things? And I think if we're not careful, we start thinking that somehow this is affecting their brain or their heart, not just their voice or their ears. And in this case, imagining, so, so Mary's prayer is called the Magnificat because of one of her first words there. This one is called the Benedictus. Um, this is the benediction that Zechariah um, gives here. He blesses, it tells us, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. So the, I, I was wrong, by the way. A few weeks ago, I referenced, I said that Gabriel wanted Zechariah's first words to be, his name is John, because I hadn't recently looked forward into the chapter and remembered that those aren't the first words he says, those are words that he writes. It turns out his first words aren't his name is John, his first words are to bless God. And it made us wonder, so imagining that Zechariah nine or ten months ago <coughs> probably came out of the temple, and he's supposed to probably give a blessing to the people. He's probably supposed to come out having lit the, lit the incense, and he's supposed to come out and now bless the people, but he couldn't because he couldn't speak. And so instead, now he's been spending the last nine or ten months refining in his brain, what is this benediction I'm going to give? What am I going to, as soon as I can speak, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like if you go a little while without food and you're like, man... As soon as I can eat again, I'm going to have, and you start creating a list in your brain, is this, man, as soon as I can speak again, here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I'm going to share. And so he opens up his mouth. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And his first words are actually going to be another Hebrew poem. The theme of this poem is, God is doing what he promised which may tell you where Zechariah's heart was before. We talked about that. This is a man who's been praying all of his life for a child. No luck, so to speak. How much, how much had his heart grown cold or at least stiff that he would say, what do I pray about? How do I, God forget, God has forgotten. If, we, if you ever wrestle with that, God has forgotten me. God has neglected me. God has forsaken me. This prayer is, is for us. It's for those of us who have felt this. God is doing what he promised. Listen to his poem. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is past tense. 
um, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It starts with this. God has not forgotten us. He's not forgotten his covenant. He has accomplished what he said he would accomplish. Sure, it's taken a thousand years since he promised this to David. It's taken, again, literally only God knows how long since he promised Adam and Eve that one of Eve's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. Yes, we've been waiting for a very long time, but it just seemed to us like God had forgotten us. He had not. We now can worship him without fear of our enemies. We now can serve him without fear of our enemies. So the question, I think the natural question for us, brothers and sisters, is do we? Do we serve him without fear of our enemies? Maybe, maybe he's thinking Greeks and Romans, but we should be thinking rejection. Culturally, personally, that's our fear. Sin and death, that's, those are our enemies and do we serve and worship without fear of those? Having on my brain, at least in preparation for trying to get it onto your brains, this conversation of being invitational, I've been shocked at how easy it is for me to talk myself out of inviting someone into my life, into our church, into things. It's now on my brain constantly, and I'm amazed at how often I can walk away from a conversation and think, I should probably invite them to church and then keep going rather than turn around and go back. Because I could talk myself out of it. Oh, they're going to think that's weird, or they're going to, what a strange thing, or they're going to be like, what is this, some kind of a cult? And why do I care what they think about that? And yet, I do. That is the fear of my enemies taking over where I should be serving him without those fears. Do we choose to live before him in righteousness purely because we can? Or does fear dictate how inviting we are? how loving we are, how sacrificial we are, how well we listen, how generous, how forgiving we are. Is that fear? Or are we doing it because, in a way because he's conquered it? And then maybe in one of the most intimate moments we get in Scripture that I love, he has just shared this before everybody, and this next little section is none of our business. And yet we get to experience it. I pictured Zechariah, the old man, taking this eight-day-old son, and bringing him forehead to forehead, I picture it that way because that's how I did it, bringing this child forehead to forehead with him and saying this, and you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is a different form of literature. This is not Jewish poetry. This is a Jewish blessing. This is a father telling his son, this is what I see and this is what God has revealed to me about you. And, and by the way, how bold. He's gonna, he declares that his son, to his son, his eight-day-old son, you will be a prophet of the Most High. Where does he get the, the, the boldness to say that kind of stuff? Well, remember, the angel came to him and told him, this is who your son is going to be. He's going to be the fulfillment of this. Once again, what we see, these two, Zechariah and Mary, are so inspired by poetry that it just rolls off of their tongues. 
It was, I, I stopped checking, but I don't, I don't have any idea. We talked about this. How many Psalms are being cited in these two prayers? It's like almost like they had no creative thoughts on their own. They're just taking things out of the Psalms and putting together in this beautiful, these two beautiful poems. At least Psalm 34, 35, 41, 72, 98, 106, 113, 132, 138, and 147 are directly quoted by the two of them. And, and, and I think there was probably a dozen more. And who knows how many we didn't even catch. Plus Isaiah, plus other prophets. Here's what I want you to hear. This is key, ladies and gentlemen. This is key to joy. Joy, yes. Joy is largely experienced through our family and friends and culture and community. That's a key part of what God wants us to experience when it comes to joy. The expansion of that, the involvement of others into our life. And, not but, and joy comes through knowing His Word. Joy comes through knowing God's Word. This is a, what could I say? So I, I, when I took each of, I've taken each of my children at different times and put my forehead to theirs and spoken a blessing over them, what can I say to them? I can, I can say what Scripture says. Yes, I can say my blessing over them that the Lord would bless them and keep them and make His face shine upon them and be gracious to them. But what can I declare is true to them? When I put my forehead to theirs, I can say, you are an image bearer of Almighty God. The God who spun stars into space, who created everything that is, that there was nothing and then he spoke and there was something. That God who knows every molecule, the working of every cell, of every molecule, of every quantum particle that we can imagine, he understands them fully, he created them, he spoke them. That God has placed his image on you. You bear his image. And that's a powerful thing. And number two, you are his treasure. He decided that it would be worth coming and with great joy to give up everything, come and experience life as a human, and not just any human, but a servant human, and take on the life of a human, and not just any death, all the way to the point of death, not just any death, but the death of a martyr, the death on a cross, because he thought we were that valuable, that precious to him. We are his treasure, and we can speak that into the lives of our children. If you haven't done that, I encourage it, um, if you know him. If you believe that. Verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We get this little gap. Now that's the life of John summarized from the day he, time he was eight days old until he's about 30. We're now going to go verse the next chapter. We're going to go back in time and look at a much uh, more quiet birth in some ways. The wonder expressed by these songs, all of them that we have sung today and that we've Wednesday and the other days and all through this season and all through the year, honestly, these people are in awe. And it's natural for us to lose hold of that. What's it like to be silent and maybe deaf for all those months? I bet it focuses your attention really well. To be undistracted, what would that be like? In awe and in wonder, we can't lose that. Bryn can go ahead and, you can go ahead and start coming up. So, at our staff Christmas party, Kendall had asked Bryn to uh, lead us in a devotional time, and it was so dead on exactly what we needed to hear and with what we're talking about this Sunday that I asked her to come and share it with you too. So, Bryn, take it away. 
Hi, I'm Bryn Starnes, and I am a first-time mom of a son, which is just a cool thing, studying the life of Mary. And we have a picture, but this is a picture of my son experiencing our Christmas tree for the first time. And he just crawled up to it and sat with his feet crossed and just stared for a while. And I love this picture because it kind of epitomizes our year that has been seeing things through new eyes and seeing things in a new light. Um, and I think as my husband and I have been just describing the truths of Christmas and the truths of the gospel to him, even though he's not really old enough to, to understand a lot yet, the practice of that has brought us back to being in awe of God. And I think it has also just convicted me of how often I'm not in awe anymore. It's convicted me of um, how often I feel like I'm, I'm even too busy just to sit and just reflect on who Jesus is and rejoice in him. Um, Luke In Luke 10, 39, there's the story of Martha and Mary. And Martha is busy and she has a lot to do and she's doing good things. She's preparing for her family and for Jesus. And her sister Mary is sitting at his feet, learning from him and spending time with him. And she goes to him and she's frustrated and she says, um, Lord, can you help or tell my sister to help me? And he says, Martha, you're worried about a lot of things, but Mary has chosen the good portion and it won't be taken away from her. And then in Psalm 51:12, David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba and the adultery and murder and everything that has gone with that. And at one point he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And I love both of these things, and I've been thinking about both of these passages a lot because I think we talk about joy a lot around Christmas. It's kind of a Christmas buzzword. We even pray for joy sometimes. But I've been convicted to ask myself, how often is that joy actually in the person of Jesus? How often am I in awe of him again? Um, and how long has it been since I experienced the joy of his salvation and just seeing that again with new eyes? So I think sometimes Christmas comes and goes and we hurry and we hustle and we celebrate and um, we pass by on the awe that comes from reflecting on him. And sometimes maybe we're just busy like Martha or we're bogged down by sin like David or maybe we're just numb because we have done Christmas a lot. It comes every year and we celebrate um, and yet we miss out on those truths that um, just bring the true hope and joy of it. So my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we won't pass by on the awe of seeing these things in a new light again, seeing them as if it's for the first time. And like Mary, we can be in wonder of God who is great and merciful and strong, who fills the hungry with good things and who's Emmanuel, God with us, and that we will either see that and for the first time maybe, or that we'll be restored to that joy. So that's my prayer for all of us. Thanks, Bryn. Yeah, that's exactly what, as we, were, as we were talking about this and as she shared that with us, I thought this is what we've seen is that 2,000 years ago, an old man and a young woman were in awe of what God was doing and they were inspired to write songs about it, to write a poem about it. <clears throat> they, were, they were shocked by it, and the joy, they rejoiced in that. The joy filled them all the way to brimming, overflowing into this poetry. And the question would be, what about, obviously, what about us as we do this? And I know, again, even this has become part of the traditional Christmas thing, is to say, like, oh, do we, do we really know the reason for the season and, and all that kind of stuff? 
But it's a fair question, and it's one that we need to be asking, especially when we get um, challenged by someone like Zechariah or Mary in their hearts. Um, the, the, the devotional actually inspired me to change my working definition for joy, um, and that's tough for me. I, I work hard on these definitions. Those who know me well, I work hard on these working definitions, and I come to one. And what I realized was I had, I've defined joy as borrowing um, happiness from the future, um, kind of as a response to worry, which is borrowing anxiety from the future. Um, that something's happening then, and I feel it now. And that happens both ways. But what I realized in this conversation is that joy isn't just borrowing happiness from the future. It's borrowing happiness from anything that God has done. It's borrowing happiness from, um, from, from, uh, from family and friends and borrowing happiness from what's going on in other people's lives and ministry in other places. And obviously, it's, it's about experiencing, it's borrowing happiness from an event that happened 2,000 years ago that we can attach to that and experience the happiness, the, the wonder, the all. Put whatever word you want in there for happiness, those positive emotions, um, or, or from this account in Luke chapter 1, which is all about preparing for His coming. So I, I hope uniquely we as Christians can experience joy because we can borrow uh, happiness or, or what, again, put what words you want there, from 10,000 years from now, what it's going to be like to be living in community with Almighty God actually in the, in the same place. What an amazing thought that would be. But be able to celebrate and experience the joy of the, the truth of what has happened in the past and what that means now. So I hope you are prepared to celebrate His coming. Um, I hope you're prepared for that. And, and maybe part of that this morning as, our, as we start our invitation would be that you may need to come up and you need to leave something behind. Maybe like David, there's sin or struggle or, or anxiety or, or something in our life that we're like, I need to, I need to set this aside, my pride aside, uh, my whatever aside, and then that will allow me to focus my attention in. Uh, maybe we need to speak a little less like Zechariah, and um, may, maybe that's what it is. I, I don't know for each of us to be less distracted. So if you will, stand with me, and, and we'll sing together in a moment, and we'll pray together to wrap up this time. My, my hope is that you're thinking about Man, how, how could I serve and worship without the fear of those things that I call my enemies? How do I embrace the people, the difficult people in my lives as well with the power of invitation and the gospel and that lay aside anything that needs to be laid, laid aside? That we would remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. So to read from that passage that Bryn just referenced, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and hold, uphold me with a willing spirit. The very words of God. Oh, I need to comment and say, if you want to, so a couple things, I didn't say this, if you want to join, if you've been through our welcome home process, I left that part out, and you want to join our church, our dysfunctional family, now is the time to do that as well. But feel free to come up here, pray, would love to pray with you here, Paul or I, or someone over in the corner, love to pray with you, or again, if you're ready to join up, and you've been through that process, we'd love for you to do that too, so.